But when I think about having hard conversations, we are afraid of doing that. We're afraid of stepping into vulnerable spaces with one another and saying, help me understand what this behavior is about. I want to hold you accountable to a higher standard and care for you at the same time. Hi, everybody. It's Paul Critchley, president of New England Lean Consulting, and welcome to another episode of the New England Lean Podcast. This week, our guest is Sabrina Moon. Uh, Sabrina is the founder and CEO of the Problem Solving Institute, and she's also a certified Dare to Lead facilitator, which is uh, based on the research from Dr. Brene Brown. I've known Sabrina for a while now. Uh, we were supposed to be able to meet in real life this year, uh, but unfortunately, COVID-19 shut down all the conferences, uh, as they have for, I'm sure, everybody here listening as well. So it was a little bit of a bummer that we couldn't finally meet, um, but I was so happy that she agreed to be on the podcast with me, um, so we at least got to hang out uh, a little bit that way. Um, Sabrina and my backgrounds are remarkably similar. She was, she's an engineer. She's a, a Six Sigma black belt. She worked at General Motors for a short period. So she has some automotive knowledge. Um, and it's funny in this episode, you know, we trade a few stories that if you change the name of the people involved and the sign on the front of the building, I think they would be the exact same story. So I think it's very telling and very interesting uh, from a cultural standpoint that, you know, two people who are, you know, have never met before, but have very similar experiences, I think says a lot about the culture in those industries, maybe at that time. Uh, I like to think that that's changing, but that's where we spend a lot of the time in this episode talking about um, Sabrina uh, uh, specifically talks about moving from what she calls shame and blame and using that technique or those techniques to get quick results uh, because it's all based on not having a lot of time. And you'll hear in the episode, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I was right there with you. Uh, because for those of us who've been in manufacturing, it's pretty fast paced. And uh, unfortunately, we just don't take the time to spend in the uh, respect for people pillar like we really should. But anyway, she talks about uh, transitioning from shame and blame to vulnerability and bravery and what it means to be able to do that, what it takes to do that, how painful that can be. Um, she even talks a little bit about, you know, she challenges me and all of us to think, you know, what would work be like if we had love for each other, which is a little bit of a callback to our episode with Mark C. Crowley, who wrote the book, Lead from the Heart, and has a podcast of the same name. Um, so there's definitely a trend there. And that's why I say I, I hope uh, and I wish for uh, these things to be taking hold so we can change what our cultures are like. And, and like I said, in this episode, we both share a couple of stories that I'm sure you'll be able to relate to. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, I, I think they're pretty common. Finally, she shares something that I think is, you know, and I'm not going to oversell it, but I really think it's, it's groundbreaking kind of stuff. Uh, for those of us who remember COPQ, Cost of Poor Quality, uh, Sabrina's built a tool called Cost of Poor Behavior, and I'll link to this in the show notes. It's it's pretty cool. This is a tool that she's built 
Um, and I'm not going to spoil it. So I definitely, I think you should go and check this thing out and play around with it. It's a pretty neat tool. Uh, and I really think she's onto something and it's, I think it's pretty amazing. So give a listen. And as always, I hope you like it. If you do, uh, I wouldn't mind it if you left us a positive review and maybe hit the five stars on Apple podcasts. Um, cause we work hard at this and, uh, I hope that you like it. So I hope you enjoy the episode and have a great week, everybody. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the New England Lean Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Critchley, and today it is my very distinct honor to welcome our guest, Sabrina Moon. Sabrina, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. It was a great week and a great weekend. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm so, I'm so excited that like, you and I finally get to hang out. After, like, Because we, we have a virtual relationship, right? We see each other on social media, and we haven't, obviously, lately, haven't had a chance to meet in person because nobody's doing anything in person really right now. Um, so I'm so excited that you were get to, we get to see each other and talk. I know. It's been a long time coming. I think we, we uncovered it's probably been three years that we've known each other through LinkedIn. So, yeah, yeah this is good. Isn't, it, isn't that funny that, I don't know, I mean, I think we're probably both Gen Xers, right? I'm going to guess. I know yeah, I am. I'll disclose my age, 43. So I guess yeah, there you go. I'm the big, I'll be, well, actually, when the, by the time this podcast airs, I'll have turned 45. So Congrats. there you go. Um, and I, would, I do want to talk about that a little bit, but in a second, before we, before we kind of dig in, um, so people who listen to this podcast probably are all, all about continuous improvement and lean and organizational change and leadership and that kind of stuff. Um, so they may or may not have heard of you. So could you just give us a little in, inside look at who Sabrina Moon is and what you're all about? Sure. Um, so let, let's, let's go into that conversation about continuous improvement. So I would call myself now a recovering engineer and, you know, it's kind of a terrible joke, but. Uh, my background is that. So I've led large teams through change um, in different organizations, uh, trans large transportation organizations, specifically class one railroads. Um, also had several years in leadership and management with General Motors. So different roles, whether it be maintenance supervision or manufacturing engineering. So I definitely have a passion for continuous improvement and lean. And I think when I think about all the connections on LinkedIn that I have, um, I learn regularly still through LinkedIn with all the content that I see people like yourself sharing. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. I don't do a lot of CI and lean related work in terms of process improvement or on site anymore. I have focused the past couple of years on leadership development. So in a way I've kind of gone down the respect for people if you if you want to say that but um, I'm focusing mainly on developing leaders and organizations and the skills of courage so how do we have hard conversations how do we develop self-awareness so that way we can show up for our teams in the midst of really difficult things like a business transformation so now I'm focused on the people side mainly so that's primarily what I do in a nutshell a lot of consulting now through the computer like yourself lots of zoom meetings um, it is so cool that we can do this though. I just facilitated a session yesterday where my co-facilitator was in South Africa and the participants were from all over. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have tech like this to be able to have meetings. So, yeah. It, it, it is. I mean, I don't want to say thanks to COVID because it's, you know, 
it's a it's not a good thing you know um i do think it's it's i've read some articles you know i think new york i want to say new york times wall street journal or both that in some regard this whole pandemic has forced our hand to do more things like like this so in some respect we're farther down the road than in you know than we might have been otherwise yeah um but it is it is a you know honestly i mean aside from skype which i think is still around but you never hear anybody talk about it anymore it's all microsoft teams or zoom i think right or the two big ones um but i hadn't really used it a heck of a lot and now it's without it like our i don't even well we'd still have a business but it'd be a lot you know less busy i guess yeah so so you touched on kind of where i wanted to start out which you know you mentioned you're a recovering engineer and i i guess i kind of am too even though it's i don't know my wife would disagree she gets because it's i still have the you know like 5s mindset like everything in its place and i'm very neat and orderly and i do things which is probably more ocd than it is engineering but i do things in a very specific way in a very specific manner and she teases me all the time and she's right um but when you talk about recovering engineer can you expand upon that a little bit are you talking more giving up the data tools side and more focused in the people culture side yeah so um Yes and no. So when I think about giving up the tools, um, I don't think I've given up problem solving in any way. Um, I still heavily lean on the approach to to eight-step problem solving, you know, it's made popular by Toyota. And the reason I say that is I use that uh, when I'm coaching clients, I actually use the A3 roadmap to be able to define uh, our problem. I want to understand what success looks like, but I mainly want for them to see the path to get there. And their involvement with the A3 is critical. And it's no different than what we would do on site with a facility. I would say what I've let go of though is um, all of the certainty that we like as engineers to sell with defined processes and checklists. So I've let go of the literal checklist and the metaphorical checklist of trying to perfect things and trying to design uncertainty into everything I'm doing. And now I embrace the suck. I call it embrace the suck of uncertainty. And I step into relational vulnerability with people that I'm developing to understand what's in their way. Um, So I've done that for my, for myself more than anything, but I'm not really leaning on any of the 5S related tools, value stream mapping. I'm not engaging with clients with that, in that way anymore. I really wanna help them understand, um, you know, what, what they wanna change with their culture that's gonna help them improve processes. So I had to kind of rumble with that internally first to know how I wanted to show up for my clients. So not doing Six Sigma projects, no checklists. I've tried to let go of some of that. Gotcha. And that's, I mean, very fair. It, and I, I should probably uh, qualify my statement. I, I probably shouldn't have said give up the tools because, right, tools are tools, right? And you're a, no, uh, so you're a, a recovering engineer, uh, but you're also, weren't you also, I think, a mechanic? <laughs> yes. Um, so my journey 
through um, leadership and becoming the Sabrina you see now started as an auto mechanic. It's so funny because most people are, they look at me and they're like, but you're so girly. And, and those are social norms, but they look at me and say, how, how, how did you get from this point to this point? So early on when I went to college, I went to school for automotive technology. So I went to school to work on cars and uh, graduated. My dad had his own garage in a small town in Northeast Indiana. So near Fort Wayne. And when I grew up, I was out in the garage helping him. So both of my parents were blue collar. Mom cut hair and delivered mail. My dad worked on cars. And that's where I went. That's where I gravitated to. So I was out in that garage helping with things and wanted to try and see if I could do it full time as a young adult. And it turns out um, I, I couldn't and didn't, meaning I struggled with some of the physical aspects of working on cars. So anything tied to suspension that was really heavy duty was a little harder on me. Um, really learning leverage techniques and utilizing cherry pickers and hoists was helpful, but um, it just took me a little bit longer. And while I loved it, I was slower at it than, than most, maybe most men. Not, not all women are slow at it. I was. Um, so yeah, I eventually went back to school for uh, mechanical engineering and math and uh, landed a position at GM as a maintenance supervisor in my young 20s. And all of that background I had as an auto mechanic um, really, really helped me speak the language, like mm -hmm. understanding a grade five fastener and really knowing how to talk with people about um, improving things and repairing cylinders. That was huge. So there was, there was no mistake, even though I'm not working on cars, it's really helped me lead. Yeah. And wow. so I, I think that's awesome, by the way. I mean, I do that for fun. I couldn't, I couldn't do it for a living. Um, I just rebuilt our deck for the third time in how long have we lived here? 18 years. So, wow. and it took, it took forever. And even though this is the third time I've done it and it's just, so to your point, I, I like doing it on a Saturday afternoon, you know, with a cold PBR, you know, and I can put a, like yesterday, I put a, a throttle position sensor in my wife's Jeep and it, you know, right. But Hey, if it takes me half an hour or it takes me two hours, right. Who can, right? It doesn't matter. I don't have a boss who's, Hey, you got to get this done because we got five more cars to get in here and I get a customer and right. The whole, the whole, yeah. the whole deal. Um, but the reason I brought, I brought it back to tools is because obviously tools are vital, right? Because it's a, it's a, it's a, a method to an end. Um, and as engineers and I'll generalize, but right. So I, I, I'll speak for me. I gravitate towards tools or I should say I used to, um, because again, it's a, oh, well, here's my hammer and everything's a nail, right? It's, you know, so you maybe fall into that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, do you feel like as a culture, organizational change culture, however you want to define it, are we moving away from tools towards culture? And I'll, the reason I ask you that is I feel like we kind of are, whereas I don't know, pick a number, one, two years recently, it feels like we're having a lot more conversations around what is the culture going to be able to support and sustain versus 
these are the five S's. And here's how you do a value stream map. And here's a fishbone diagram. And here's your A3 template, even though there really isn't one. Is that what you're saying? Is that, how did you manage that switch from, you know, from where you were to where you are? Okay, uh, great question. So I feel like there's two things, there's two parts to it. So I wanna make sure I answer both. Are we moving away from it? And then how did I switch? And how did I go that direction? So in all fairness, because I'm not specifically working in an industry anymore, um, meaning I'm not working and managing a large business transformation. Um, I only really have conversations like people like yourself. I don't know if we are, I would say moving away from it. I see a lot of conversation on LinkedIn. Um, that feels more culture focused. Um, I would say, I hope we are because the tools, once we learn them, like, okay, yes, it makes sense. Here's the approach to this. It's definitely the culture piece, as we've all said as practitioners, that's the harder piece of any business transformation or really lean thinking. And I often hear leaders say, that's the foo-foo stuff like the culture piece is the foo-foo stuff. But I will say it is absolutely the hardest stuff. So while talking about behaviors and emotions and culture may be foo-foo, I've used that word too. Um, I know it's way harder to sustain because it requires us to reflect, have self-awareness, look within, sometimes pause and, and recognize that behavior is a way to communicate and stepping into empathy is vulnerable and uncomfortable and none of us want to do it none of us want to say what's going on back here like why aren't y'all following the standard work like what's happening why is the line stopped what's going on all of all of those things are hard very hard way harder than tools so i hope we're going that way so if you're seeing it and you're feeling it i would say that's great because we can always circle back in the tools we can always focus there and improve that. The, the lean thinking and the mindset regarding culture, we need to go there and we need to dig into it heavily. And the reason I say that now is the whole reason I have a job, the whole reason I do what I do is because people aren't talking to each other. And what I see leaders of any organization, it doesn't matter if it's for-profit, so I work with manufacturing companies, nonprofit companies, I work in public service. I do a lot of work with law enforcement officers. What I'm seeing leaders struggle with right now is the thing that gets in the way. And the thing that gets in the way is usually relationship and having hard conversation. We just avoid it, we go around it, and we dodge it. We need it. That's why I have a job. We're not having hard conversations. We are talking about people and not to them. That's not effective. We're using a lot of shame and blame in our workplaces versus accountability and learning. That's more vulnerable than using shame and blame. We can go into that if you want. But when I think about having hard conversations, we are afraid of doing that. We're afraid of stepping into vulnerable spaces with one another and saying, help me understand what this behavior is about. I want to hold you accountable to a higher standard and care for you at the same time. Hmm. I want to care for you at the same time. And so that, yes, that's exactly where I wanted to go. How do we do that? Which I know is a huge question, but, or let me back up. Have you always been that way? Like, is this always been kind of your 
like modus operandi or or no? Yeah. No. So this kind of segues into the second question of how did I get down this way or down this path and have I always been this way? So I was taught to lead um, and I don't get me wrong, people that taught me about leadership and the folks that have mentored me and still mentor me are absolutely doing the best that they can. I engage with people in my life now with that assumption and that mindset that you're doing the best you can and the people who developed me and mentored me were doing the best they can in that moment with the tools that they had. So while I'm learning better ways now, I want to be mindful that what I'm sharing and what I learned, I don't believe was anybody's ill intent. They may not have understood the impact of what they were teaching me, but their intention was to grow me and make me as strong as a leader as they could. And I was taught how to use shame in really effective ways in organizations. So when you think about me, if you picture a place like GM when I worked there years ago, yes, not a lot of women leading. I mean, that's common in those types of industries. But I still loved what I what I did. Wearing blue jeans, steel toe boots, and hard hats was kind of how I was raised. So that didn't bother me. But what I often learned was that if I asked a lot of questions, that could have been perceived as weakness. So you don't know what you're doing. So I was taught to use a lot of shaming language. So instead of saying, help me understand why you think the rod gland on this cylinder is failing in this way repeatedly, I would have said, clearly, if you actually would have known your job, you would have fixed this already. You know, maybe you were trained by an idiot. So I would use that kind of language, which is shaming in nature, and that would get me results quick. So I would use shame and the fear of people feeling shame to keep them in line and to get results quickly because I didn't have time to go down this route. I was in a hurry. I needed the line going. I needed equipment soon, fast. Um, I didn't have time to engage in those conversations from a wholehearted place of leadership. I needed it done now. And shame was a really fast way to get it done. <laughs> the word shame isn't something I was taught. I didn't understand that the word or the emotion, and I didn't understand how I was using it early in my career. I just knew it got results. So the short answer is no, I wasn't always willing to have hard conversations and lean into vulnerability and care about people. I wanted to, but I often heard that that was perceived as weakness. So dropping the hammer on people was what I did because it got results. I think that was one of my nicknames at the railroad was uh, the hammer. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was either that or Sabrina the Butcher, because my, my last name, my maiden name used to be Butcher. So, yeah. Ne neither one of those <laughs> names are proud moments. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we've, Sabrina, we've all been there. I mean, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't say that I didn't do similar things, honest. Um, and I, and I certainly had similar things said to me there. I mean, I've told stories you know, on my blog and, and even on this podcast, you know, you know, I drive to my job. Um, you know, I worked for a, a local, how do I want to say this, aeros large aerospace manufacturer. And they're about 20, 25 minutes from my house. And I could, I didn't even have to look at the clock. I could know when I was, you know, 15 minutes away, 10 minutes away, five minutes away by how my chest and my stomach felt. 
because I knew as soon as I pulled into the, my parking space and shut my truck off, I just, I just didn't feel good. And I knew, and, and it wasn't anything specific. I, I didn't walk in knowing, well, today's like, uh, we still have this machine down and I know it's going to be an issue or, you know, something happened. It was none of that. It was, I just know I'm going to get yelled at today for something. And nine and a half times out of 10, it's something I, number one, I didn't even know walking in. Uh, it's something I have no control over. It, you know, it's not under it, it, like, but because to your point, because I think as a, in, in every VP and director's defense I've ever had, um, they're probably in a very similar situation. They just don't have time. And maybe it manifests itself in that way where it's, you know, like I think of, and this is a wild tangent, but I think about the wolf in Pulp Fiction. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's an old one, right? But one of his lines is, and I'm, I'm not going to get this right, but he's like, I'll apologize up front if I'm Kurt, but we're up, right? We don't have a lot of time. Um, maybe that's just what it was, was because everyone's so busy. I mean, we don't have a client today that has extra people. If anything, even, even with COVID-19, people are still looking for help, whether it's an engineer or machinist or an inspector or whatever, what have you. Um, so maybe that's what it is. But to your point, in the long run, is that really the best way to get results out of people? No. So, um, no, absolutely not. So I, I learned hard, the hard way, that I was watching trust deteriorate with the people I was leading and the absence of connection and psychological safety showed itself on a regular basis because I didn't make time and I didn't have time. And as long as I could keep enough fear present and use the type of shaming language that got results. Now, some people often would hear things like that, like name calling, like they would hear that and would think that was a way we were joking and making connection. And I get it. I think culturally and some of the uh, more industrial kind of places that we're working, that's common. And even cussing is common. And I'm still cussing to this day in places that I work. But the truth is we are wired as a human species for connection. So we have a choice to make as leaders. We can not have time. We can use shame and blame to get results short term, but we're also building, um, we are deteriorating trust and psychological safety significantly by doing that. And we're also setting ourselves up for sabotage because think about the times that you've gotten yelled at um, and you knew like, I mean, your body was telling you, you were driving into work and you felt your stomach upset and your chest was getting tight. Like those are, those are all the physical symptoms of trauma too, by the way, but I'm not a clinical person or a psychologist. So um, I, I just cover that briefly. Those symptoms are letting you know something was wrong. Um, and they were also letting you know, like, hey, you're about to walk into this today and it sucks. This is not your best opportunity to show who you are. This isn't your best opportunity to serve in this industry, but you're going to go in and suck it up and get it done and hopefully avoid getting screamed at. So imagine though, even if, even if we started making a small change, imagine if the VP in that specific position said to you instead, Paul, 
we got a lot going on today. I apologize. I don't have much time to walk you through the reason for this, but you're the guy for this today. Like you're my guy. I know you get this done, stuff done quickly. I know you're really good at root cause analysis. Let's debrief later, but I need you to get this handled today. Like I need it done in an hour. We, we can talk about questions later. Even that sense of urgency felt respectful um, in a way that's like, I need you to handle this right now. I'll walk you through the why later. Um, it didn't use shaming language. It at least said, I'm busy, but I need you. Like that in itself can at least get results if we're in a hurry like this. But if we don't spend time tending to people's fears and feelings about their work, we're going to get problematic behaviors instead. The number one shame trigger at work is the fear of irrelevance. And as soon as people start to doubt that their value and relevance at work, they're going to start to feel shame. So again, this stuff, when I think about it, really answers a lot of these questions in my leadership journey of what I was up against. And then the how became me. Like I had to start working on me before I could really start improving trust or psychological safety. I had to, I had to work out the reasons I wanted to use shame on people and, and try new things. And that's, I mean, oh, by the way, I don't know if you look at Gallup surveys, but I mean, for, I, I don't even know, I'll, I'll, don't hold me to this, anybody listening, but I'll say for the last 10 years, at least, the number one reason people quit their jobs is they felt irrelevant, either by the work that they were doing or by their boss, right? Those are the number one and two. And because I use that a lot, those statistics a lot in a, uh, my workshop for employee engagement. And before COVID hit, we were on a trend line, like actually I gotta get this right. We were on a trend line like this, where people were quitting. Like I think, and I teach this workshop a lot. I'd have to go in and update that number, the, uh, that number every single month because it was, you know, every single month it was, it was going up. And right before, I'll say in February, uh, right before COVID, it was about three and a half million. So three and a half million Americans quit their job every single month. Wow. Yeah. And, and I use that. So when we, now we're doing this virtually, so I'll put a poll into zoom and, and I'll even still get, you know, people will guess half a million to a million. And when I hit them with three and a half million and I let it sink in for a second, that's per month. And that's not including people who, who retire or people who get fired or laid off. That's flat out. I quit. I can't take it anymore. So in lean terms, you think about the waste that that creates and and I'll use your example. Instead of me walking in and getting yelled at, you know, if you, you're my boss and you say, <clears throat> Critchley, I need you to do this, just, you know, freaking get it done and walk away. Maybe it takes you five or 10 seconds more to explain it just the way you did. Paul, I'm really, I'm so busy today. I apologize in advance. I don't have time to explain this to you. I need you today. Can I count on you? It's like, it, and we like you and I talking, it seems so obvious, but I don't even know how many, what, a hundred bazillion times a day, those conversations don't happen. And it's something, right? I'll give you a, another quick example. Um, one of my other jobs that I also hated, it was once a week, I used to have to go into this VP's corner office and uh, report out on this project. And I was the leader of this project team, as were a few other people. So we would all walk into this office and we all knew what was coming because we had to do it every week. And he would systematically go around the table and just rip into us. 
like half the time we didn't even get a sentence or two out of our face. And it's just like, you guys suck. Your team, you know, are you like, he looked right at me one time. He's like, are you and your team stupid? And I'm thinking, aren't we all on the same team? Like, don't all of our badges have the same color on them? Like, what is your problem? But, and so flash. So the, here's the, here's the punchline. I only lasted at this place for, I don't even think I made it a year. I think it was 45 weeks. And um, so I gave my two weeks and my last day was a Friday. So I still went, it was Thursday afternoon, one thirty, Right. And uh, so I go to this, go to this meeting. I walk in and this guy's like, Hey, I heard you're, uh, I heard you're leaving us. Yeah, I am. And Sabrina, he looks right at me and he goes, why? Mm. And I'm just like, and I looked right at him. I'm like, are you, are you serious? And he just, and it hit me right then. It hit me. He didn't even realize, you know, it wasn't that he was being a jerk and he knew it. He just didn't even occur to him. And I'm just thinking, so I basically said, you know, being who I am, I mean, I didn't like land base the guy, but I'm like, I told him, I'm like, I come in here once a week and you rip into me. I'm like, you rip into me, my team. I'm like, in the last nine months, how many times have you asked me or anybody else for these other teams? What help can I give you? What resources can I give you? I'm like, you know how many? Zero. Never once. And he, he like, it was the shortest meeting we've ever had. I think it was like 10 minutes. And I'm like, I'm not trying to get one over on the guy. Cause I'm like, I already gave my, you know, and I have thought I'm going to get walked out of here and I wasn't trying to be insubordinate, but as much as he didn't realize what he was doing or saying or making me feel, I was like, you need to know, dude, like not okay. Like I'm quitting basically because of you and, and your ilk, like, cause every other director and VP in this place, like I have, yeah, there's one, um, one guy, Martin Weikert. So I don't know if he's listening, Martin, I miss you. But um, like, he was the guy that would say, I need your help. You know, can you help me? Um, so it just, to, it frustrates me, I guess, um, that we that we think of leadership as you got to be thick skinned and tough. Because it's, I don't think that's, I don't know. I don't think that's what it should be, right? Agree. Like, I feel as leaders, we need to care about our people, period. Like, in, in fact, I might even use this word, and this is really going to challenge us to think deeply. What would it be like if we had love for our people? And I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about like, altruistic love. Like, just in general, caring about the well-being, having a love for our people that sends them away better than what they came in. Isn't, I mean, isn't that what we would all want? And, and when we describe great leaders, that's what we describe. So when I ask people to walk me through and I'm creating maybe like a chart of great leadership behaviors or think of an amazing leader or mentor that you've had, what qualities did they exhibit? It's all those things um, that would tie to caring about our people and loving our people, for sure. So why we don't do them? I don't have all the answers and um, never will. This is a part of our journey, just trying to uncover and continuously improve. But 
I do think we have a belief around connection and relationships and relational vulnerability that we need to get curious about. I think our belief around that, we need to start looking at and challenging. I think we often feel that connection to people, bringing them food, showing them care, asking how they're doing, stepping into hard conversations and saying to somebody, I care about you, we need to work on this. I think we think of that as weakness. I think we think of that, and the reason I say that is because of what I understand about vulnerability now. So I, I probably should have prefaced that I'm one of Dr. Brene Brown's certified facilitators in Dare to Lead. So if you hear me using some of the language that she uses in her research, um, it's because I talk about this stuff a lot. So what I understand about vulnerability, um, so can I ask you what, did you, what did you grow up? believing vulnerability was weakness. Yeah, for 100%. sure. Because, yep. uh, you know, my dad was a blue collar guy, too. He, yep. he didn't work on cars, but he worked on walking cool. He was, you know, worked for himself. But, you know, dark blue Dickies and a light blue Dickies shirt every single day. And he, yep. he lived in a van. His lunch, probably four days out of the week was a hot dog from a gas station. I mean, yep. he was up and out at 530. Especially I grew up in Maine and coastal Maine, which is, um, huge with tourism. I mean, that's our, that's Maine's number one industry. Okay. And uh, a lot of the restaurants around were only open between, basically it was Memorial Day to Labor Day. And you had to make all your money um, because the long winter months in Maine and a lot of things are closed. So he was up and out five, 5.30 in the morning, home 5.30, six, seven, on top of being on call for 24 hours a day. Um, and my mom was, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom for a little while, went back to school, uh, but was basically like a bookkeeper. So yeah. very, you know, very similar background is to you. So we didn't have a lot of those conversations around that kind of stuff. And I, just like you said, I learned pretty quick that vulnerability is, is weakness. You don't ask questions because you're spot on. I, I was the youngest technical manager at I think that's true. It's still true at, at Pratt and Whitney here in East Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and now there's no way I'm raising my hand in a room full of my peers and colleagues. Can you explain what, whatever this thing is, you know, no, no way I get eaten alive. So I just, yep. right. You zip it and you just, you keep charging forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up believing that vulnerability is what girls did. And then if I wanted men to take me seriously, doing anything technical, don't do that. So, you know, I grew up believing that all the things that maybe made me girly because I happened to identify as a girl um, was weak. So be, be the opposite if you want for people to see you, if you want to promote, make money, be successful in industry. That was a hard lesson to learn as a kiddo that, you know, vulnerability was not only weakness, but it meant this, which I had to debunk those myths because that's not true. And the reason I learned it wasn't true, so I'll ask you another question in return. Name an act of courage that you've seen either at home or in the workplace that did not require uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure. So name an act of courage that did not require uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure? That's a tough one. I know, it's like a trick question. I should 
<laughs> yeah, no, well, I was going to say, I was, there was a few that came to mind, but I'm like, well, it was still a little risky. because right. Somebody, so right? That's why we say vulnerability is our greatest measurement of courage because the definition of vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So, so far, we, can, we have not been able to name an act of courage that did not require vulnerability. Because when we think about courageous moments that we've seen, um, they require us to step into one of those three, maybe all three. So every time I've witnessed something brave in someone else, it was for sure uncertain, maybe risky, and potentially had the um, opportunity to expose their heart or their emotions. And I never saw it as weakness. I always saw it as courage. It's so interesting that that question really help, helps us understand the relationship to courage and vulnerability. So there is no courage without vulnerability, at least not what we've seen in all of Renee's research, at least not what I've seen in my career so far. And this is even a small example, you know, doing a podcast in this way. Um, is it a risk? Yes. Like you, you are getting to know people and you're interviewing people um, and putting this material out in the world, you're creating something for the first time. It didn't exist. That's vulnerable and it's brave. I do what I can. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is an example of courage right now. So thank you. Cause honestly it is, you know, I mean, a lot of the people that I've had on are people that I have some level of relationship with some more than others, but it is still a little scary because I, you know, I'm not trained in any of this. I'm not a seasoned interviewer. I, you know, when I listen to these back, I say like, so, um, you know, a hundred times. And then I'm thinking, you know, see, I just did it. I'm thinking, I'm not good at this. I'm going to put this out there on, right in a podcast yeah. or on YouTube and all the comments are going to come. This guy sucks. You know, I can't even listen to him and da, 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 da. And there is a part of me that says, maybe it's just not worth it. You know, am I opening up myself to all this criticism? But I, I did, I did have this conversation both internally and with my wife. And I'm like, you know what? I, I still want to do this. Because if I didn't do if I didn't do what I'm doing, I I try to be a morning radio show host. Honestly, I mean, I think it sounds like fun. So this is kind of like I guess my way to bridge that gap. Um, but at a certain point, you just got to say, Meh. if people are gonna people are gonna say, if I've learned anything from social media, you you know, it's you just can't you can't listen to people sometimes because there's especially now it's there's somebody that's gonna have something to say no matter what it is. So you just kind of have to, you know, step over ignore it. it. Yeah. Like what you just did right there was you set up a great segue into understanding how shame shows up for us individually and how it shows up in our organization. So when I use the word shame, shame is that tough emotion that typically gets in the way of vulnerability. So when I'm talking with leaders and organizations, so let, let's just make this real. Let's go into Pratt & Whitney and let's go into a manufacturing space where there's a lot of noise and we hear all the and on sirens going off, lots of just lots of pressure and we've got to be looking to see where we're at with production. So let's go there. So our heads are there. 
when I hear leaders say they don't want to do vulnerability, meaning I don't want to step into uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure with people, you know, I've got too much to do. There's not enough time. I don't want to have to have these conversations. Like it's a time suck. Like I don't want to do it because I don't think I'm good at it. I don't want to do it because I don't want to be open. I don't want to open myself up for attack or criticism if I do do it. You know, I don't want to go over to Paul and say, hey, I am busy right now, but I need you. Because as soon as I say I need you, that opens me up for attack that I don't have it all together and I'm not willing to take that risk. And the story I'm making up as a leader about that is I should have my shit together here. I should have all my ducks and I discussed. Sorry. That's okay. You can believe that. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. We, we're not dead, right? I don't have to answer to the FCC, so you're more than fine. That happens a lot. So um, thanks for rolling with it. Um, leaders are making up all those stories about, you know, I, I'm not good at this, and um, I need to have my, my ducks in a row, really. So, you know, people are going to judge me if I say, I need you. Um, I can't do this right now. I'll talk with you later. They're going to judge me. When the truth is, the number one way to build trust with people uh, is asking for help. So as soon as we go out on a limb, as soon as we step into vulnerability and say, I need you, I need your help, that's a way to actually build trust, not deteriorate it. But here's where shame creeps in. So I'm going to use your language. I heard you say, I'm not a radio show host. Like, I don't have skills for this. I'm saying, um, am I good enough to do this? That's how shame functions. And it's that really tough primitive emotion that creeps in when we're about to do something vulnerable. And shame is the emotion that says you are flawed, broken, and unworthy to be here. You're an idiot. You are not good enough. That's, that's literally how it squeezes us. So one side of it is, who do you think you are? You're not a skilled interviewer. Paul, you're going to screw this up and say, um, and then as soon as you start doing it, the other squeeze of that is, oh, really? Who do you think you are? So that's kind of the squeeze of shame. And that emotion, it's really tied to the fight, flight, or freeze response part of our brain. And when we're in shame and we have that emotion that's triggered for us and it shows up at work because humans are at work. So shame is in all of our workplaces and it's a part of the human experience. But the way that it shows up is really toxic and unhealthy for cultures. So talking about it is actually a good thing. Doesn't mean we have to get clinical. Doesn't mean we have to go sit in a chair. Nothing wrong with clinical or sitting in a chair. But if we're at Pratt & Whitney and we're thinking about how crazy, stressful, busy things are, and we're not aware of how shame might be showing up, and we're not aware of how vulnerability is impacting our teams, then for sure we probably have an issue we're probably using shame to get results if we're not aware of those emotions and how they're showing up. So you just gave us a great example of how it showed up for you and how being willing to do it anyway, stepping over cheap seat feedback, like that feedback that you get from people in the arena that are throwing tomatoes at you, you suck. We got to step over that because we're going to get criticism no matter what we do. So if we went nowhere, said nothing, and did nothing, we'd get criticized anyway. So we need this type of behavior, and we need courage in the workplace. We need vulnerability in the workplace more than ever. So if more culture conversations are coming out, that's, thank God, because we need that. Humans are at work, and if we're leading, 
not only are we in the people business, we're in the self-awareness business, we're in the empathy business, and we're definitely in the shame business. Talk to me a little bit more about, so when you're coaching, so you mentioned um, your, uh, I, I, correct me if I get this wrong, certified Dare to Lead from Brene Brown's research, right? Which admittedly, I know a little tiny bit about, not much. But, and I've learned a lot just from you talking today. Can you hum a few bars about if you've worked with a, a CEO or an owner, you know, what the difference is between maybe, you know, what somebody who doesn't get it versus somebody who does get it. And, you know, do you ever tie that back to, to business metrics? Like, you know, the big four cost quality on time delivery and safety. Have you, have you seen those things kind of, you know, feed each other? Yes. Um, so my business coach, if she were here and we, like when we talk about return on investment and we talk about um, self-awareness development and leaders and how that impacts return, she often says to me, well, you know, how, how much time and energy are you going to put into this? I don't know what your return is going to be. How much time and energy are you going to put into it? And I thought deeply about her comment and I have tried to integrate some of my skills in the business transformation world into this world to try and get a cost and a handle on what this would look like if we started engaging it. So when I think about the CEOs that I've worked with and I hear some of their concerns and some of the things that get in the way, I don't hear things like, oh gosh, my cost metric is off. Like when I dig in with them and we sit and we look at each other across the room, I say, what's in the way? What are you up against? It's always back to people and it's typically back to I just don't understand why my team is struggling with this and why they're not talking to each other. And I hear it from law enforcement leaders too. Like we're just not doing this with each other. We don't sit down. We're not honest with each other. We're zigzagging and avoiding hard conversations. We'd rather be nice than give helpful, kind feedback. Like we're just behaviorally is the stuff that I see come up. So what I did was I took a, um, COPQ. Do you remember that? Do you remember that acronym for, from Six Sigma, C-O-P-Q, COPQ? Oh, yeah. Cost and poor quality? Yeah. Awesome. Um, this is great. You're my people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, well, I'm an engineer. Where do you want? <laughs> oh, it's awesome. So I took a COPQ form and I modified it and I created a behavioral COPQ. And I tested it on myself first. So what I did was I calculated the cost per minute of me just being on site. So what's my annual salary, my benefits, all of that, and how much does the company pay me to be here every minute? And then what I did was I took a, took a piece of paper and I made a spaghetti diagram of how I showed up when I was hooked by shame when I was pissed off at my boss and something had happened and behaviorally I was acting out. So this is hard, by the way, it requires a willingness to look within and look at yourself and your behavior without a lot of judgment. And a lot of us don't want to do that. We'd rather blame everyone else for why we're acting the way we are. Mm -hmm. so this is hard. I'm making it sound easy, but I took a spaghetti diagram and I sketched out what I was doing when I was struggling with some tough emotion. So 
then I identified the behaviors and I gave them labels. So one was gossiping. One was shutting down and just being disengaged. And that would mean not responding to texts, calls, or emails. The other was stonewalling. And stonewalling was that would show up in the meetings and I would shut down in a way that would not progress the meeting. So I would put kind of like the stone wall between me and you. And if there was something I had information on, I would blatantly not share it. I would just stonewall you. And lastly, I would do a lot of back channeling and back channeling is the meeting after the meeting. So let's say you and I were in a meeting and I was frustrated with some things that you said you were gonna do as opposed to being direct with you and asking questions there. I would leave the meeting, go into somebody else's office, have a meeting about you for an hour, talking about how much you sucked. <laughs> yeah, we all do it. And uh, that was my number one behavior that I would engage in. I was trying to kind of build relationships in the background that would support why I was frustrated with that person. Mm -hmm. So I calculated how many times I did that for how long, and then I attached my cost per minute to calculate the cost of my poor behavioral quality as a result of my lacking awareness and unwillingness to have hard conversations with people. It was staggering. It was like $50,000 that I was spending. Right. So when I saw that number, I was like, okay, I get that this is a subjective form. It's a soft savings calculation, but I felt like that was enough of an impact that I could start using that with coaching clients to generate awareness of their behavior and how much it was costing the company. That's amazing. It is amazing. So is this like, on your website, by the way? It's not like, this is something I've been messing around with the past six months. And um, Sabrina, I, you got to trademark this thing and I mean, copyright this thing right now. Cause you're going to be a, you're going to be a millionaire. Like Bezos better be looking over his shoulder. <laughs> no. And I'm like half I, not even kidding. I mean, could it because you're you're right. As you're talking, I was having flashbacks of of me doing that and other I, me seeing other people do that. And yeah. and you're 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 so right because when I look back and I think back about the people that were involved, there was not a lot of trust and not a lot of respect between those people. So it was all the stuff that you just said. And it was, I mean, so far unvalued, non-value added, it's not even funny. So it's to, to monetize that is you, you gotta, you gotta do it because I think to hold it up to say, Hey, look at how much this costs you yeah. would be very eye opening. I think. Yeah. You know what I, if anything, what this encourages me to do, you know, and, and watching your reaction and thank you. That's very kind. Um, you know, my purpose, my purpose in life, my purpose in, as a leader now, you know, I'm at, I'm at midlife. I've got the rest of my life now to work hard at making it better for the young people coming behind me. So all the things that I learned that were not good leadership, I have a responsibility to teach people going forward what that impact is, what that means, so they can make it better. So I feel like maybe the industrial organizational psychologists, people that do that kind of work really well, um, you know, maybe that's an opportunity for us all to have hard conversations about how we create a solid measurement tool like that form 
to really understand the cost of poor behavioral quality. Because it is subjective for sure, but my gosh, it really helps us get curious. It helps us start somewhere to, you know, see the impact of what we're doing in our workplaces. Because we're there, companies and businesses exist, obviously to make money and to make some sort of an impact. So we don't want to be paying people to be shut down and to be back channeling. Like we can do better. We have to step into vulnerability though. And, and that's hard. I get it. But it's great. Have you taken a DISC assessment before? You know what that is? Uh-huh, I have. Yeah, so I have too. I've probably done it three or four times. And it's interesting because, and again, I'll point to myself as an engineer, a stereotypical generic engineer. That was all, I'm, you know, I'm reading this thing and I like, I give it to my wife and she's like, oh, that's you. Oh my God, yes. Did they like tailor this to you? Because this is you all day long. And it, you know, so it's very eye-opening. The interesting thing, the thing that always kind of bug me a little bit though, is it's like, okay, so now I know myself better. I know you better. I know how we can interact, but it's, I think that the, and I'll, for lack of a better term, the monetization piece was never there. And that's where I really think, and because again, as a lean practitioner, when we engage with clients, we always say, well, you're wasting this amount of time and you have this many people in the cell. So right. X times Y so I really feel like, I mean, you've got something there. Not to, because you're right, it is a little subjective, but at the same time, it's a real cost, right? Sure. It's real direct labor costs, real indirect labor and benefits and overhead and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we want run a little field trial. Maybe, maybe um, I, I get the, it's in an Excel spreadsheet. Maybe I, um, you know, get some of the macros working in it quickly and send it over to you to share with your network to test it out and, and see like deal. Okay. I love it. I love this, it. Let's, yeah. We can problem we'll, solving. Direction. Yeah. We'll PDCA the snot out of this thing <laughs> or PDSA if that's your eye. I'm like, I'm way teasing either. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's just, I pick on, I pick on the arguments that break out on social media a little bit on this podcast about, you know, something I pick on all the time is the lean failure rate. And, you know, is it PDSA or PDCA? And lean is not TPS, which is not theory of constraints. And I'm just like, I had a conversation this morning, as a matter of fact, with somebody and I'm like, you know, a lot of our clients are, you know, small to medium sized organizations, mostly manufacturing here between Hartford and Springfield, uh, we, is affectionately called Aerospace Alley. And uh, if I walk into any of these potential clients or a client and I start talking about this stuff, they're just going to look at me like, what? Like, are you going to, like, can you, are you going to put your safety glasses on and come on and help me or what? And it's, I don't know, to me, it's like academic at some point but anyways I mean I'm not to take anything away because I, I know the people that engage in those conversations right it's important to them and to some extent I would agree but when the rubber hits the road like you know like you and I both know it's just right meh. anyways so I do want to shift gears a little bit uh, I like to take a break from the formal interview and play what I affectionately call the wicked fun part if you're okay. up for it let's go all right so I got a few kind of quick hitter questions for you. Um, so I don't okay. want you to put too much thought into these, uh, but if you cannot swear, that'd be great. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing you. I don't care. 
Let the let him fly, Sabrina. We're we're friends here. All right. Would you rather lose the ability to read or the ability to speak? Speak. Would you rather control space or time? Oh, good question. Yeah. Uh, time for sure. Like it is the unrenewable resource. That see, see. I knew you were going to say that because I knew you're an engineer. Because you're, I correct me if I'm wrong. Time is finite and space is infinite. Yeah. Yeah. Called it. Is it? You owe me a coke. Yeah, and I say, is it like, do we really know about time? We could go into relativity. Yeah, fair. Um, if before I die, I'm going to disprove time dilation. It's on my bucket list because I'm <laughs> pretty sure it's garbage. But we'll see. <laughs> Would you rather have? Now, the, some physicist somewhere is going to email me. Would you rather have all the traffic lights you approach be green or never have to stand in line again? Oh, definitely have them all be green. Because, like, when I'm, when I'm in my jam with my tunes, I, yeah, I like to just go. Okay. Uh, would you rather live in an apartment in a big city or a mansion in the countryside? Uh, I would say apartment in the big city because that's what I'm doing now, and I love it. Mm, nice. Yeah. Uh, would you rather be a character in the last movie you saw or a character in the last book you read? Um, I would say last movie I saw. Yeah, for sure. What was the movie? Um, it's actually the show that came up. It was Yellowstone. So that Ooh, was the last time I with Kevin Costner. Movie. Yeah, like I, uh, that area of the country is beautiful to me. So the mountains are amazing. Did you watch uh, the season, tangent alert, did you watch the season three Finale? Yes. Like, I did not see that coming. Did, did I you, didn't either. We'll see what happens. I won't spoil it for everybody. It was great. Yeah, I know, right? I know. That's all we need. Yeah. Uh, would you rather change jobs every few years or keep one job for the rest of your life? Oh, definitely change every few years. Yeah. Uh, would you rather go to the moon or to Mars? Moon. I had to pause there for a minute. Um, because I would like to go to Mars, but I want to go to Mars, but I think I want to go to the moon first. Hmm. My last name is Moon now, so that's part of it. Here's one. Here, um, I can't wait to hear your answer to this one. Would you rather wrestle a bear or an alligator? Oh, I'm not screwing with bears. Um, definitely going to wrestle an alligator. I feel like um, I could have a little more leverage with his tail. Yeah? You think you could take him? I think so. Would you rather have a see none of these make any sense, but this is the whole part. This is why it's wicked fun. Would yeah. you rather have a bottomless box of Legos or a bottomless gas tank? Oh, that's so hard. I feel stumped there on that one. Um a bottomless gas tank. Yeah. I, want see, I want to see as much as I can before I die. There you go. Yeah. Here's one. Here's the very, this is the very Sabrina specific question. Would you, would you rather weld aluminum or replace a head gasket on a modern car? I would say weld aluminum. Uh, the only unfair about, part about that is I love the noise of welding, but I love the smell of, of you know, just regular mild steel and argon and you know, just, just the fusing of metal. Hmm. Aluminum's a little different, but definitely welding. I, yeah. I, and I said, see, I specifically said modern car because, you know, I mean, doing a, right, head gasket on a 350 Chevy small block from 72 is 
you know, it's not easy, but at least it makes sense. You pop the hood on. It isn't easy, but you have a lot more room to actually do it. Um, right. Yeah. Well. Versus, yeah, I just, I pop the hood on my truck now. and I'm like, nope, put it back down. I'll change the oil and that's about it. But, do you have a Chevy pickup truck? Uh, Ford. Okay. Oh boy. I won't hold that against you. I, well, I, this is my, I used to have a Chevy. I'm not brand, I'm not a, you know, brand specific okay. guy, unless you're talking, unless you want to talk muscle cars, then we got to, I honestly, we got to go Chevy. Okay. Well, that's good. So you're forgiven instantly. We need to have another podcast just on that alone. So I'm going to, fair. So I'm going to add an impromptu. If you had a car that you, any car you wanted, what would it be? 69 Chevy Camaro 396 375 horse engine. Nice. Yes. With the rock crusher? Sure. It would, it would be black in color too, by the way. Nice. <laughs> See, I'll got to be honest with you. I was, I'm not a huge fan of the 69 because I didn't like the body line. 68 now because it's right, it's right in between. You have the full side windows without the little vent windows that the 67s have. Yeah. But I will line up with you with my future car, the 70 Chevelle 454 big block tuxedo black, exactly like the one Matthew McConaughey had in Days and Confused. That's my car. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to resist that either. If somebody parked that in my driveway, I, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 But I got, I mean, I got two college careers. I got to, I got to help pay for it in the next few years. So this thing is not in my near future. Yeah, it is what it is. Well, maybe student loans will go away by then. That would be amazing. That would be great. That would be fantastic. (laughs) I know, right? So, Sabrina, so we're kind of come. Whoops, we are. We're kind of coming towards the end. So I just wanted to ask, um, and I really respect. So the whole reason I reached out to you to invite you on was because I love what you do and how you do it. The content that you share on LinkedIn, um, because, and that's why I kind of steered the conversation this way because you know as a lean practitioner I have a lot more conversations around the culture than I do necessarily the tools I still do a fair bit of teaching with tools but when I'm talking to owners CEOs presidents you know it's how do they build culture and how do they have a culture of sustainment based on trust and respect and that's I think what you're all about and so is there anything that I didn't ask um, that you kind of want to mention as far as, you know, along those lines? Yeah, so the how question is probably one of my favorite questions. So I, all I will say when you said, how do we do it? It starts with us. So um, we can put tools in place. We can have posters in the methodology everywhere and really want people to do it. But all of the behavior that we want our people to engage in, they've got to see it modeled. So, you know, it starts with us. So if we're leading a a company or a large team, they've got to see courage, vulnerability, empathy. They've got to see all those things within you in order to behave in those ways. And really, when we think about those tools that we're teaching people, Paul, like we can't really do good problem solving without vulnerability because root cause analysis requires us to be in that messy middle where it's uncertain and we're trying things and we're taking risks. 
innovation, same thing. So, you know, we just, we just need to show up in that way. So the how has to start with us first and it sucks. Um, we're going to uncover some things along the way that we may not want to uncover, but that's where the gold is. This, this is where the growth is. So if we can just lean into that a little bit and lean on people like yourself, myself and other practitioners that were also willing to go first and uncover what's within, um, we're in place to help others uncover that and to give them the courage to practice it as well. So you're modeling it as we speak. So you're part of the how to. That's all I would add. Thank you. And it, it, to your point, I mean, it is so important and it's, funny but not funny haha it's a little funny sad i guess that it's just like it seems so obvious when people like us get together and we talk about it but then you go look at industry and all this other stuff all this other baggage comes along with it it's the imposter syndrome and feeling of inadequacy and i can't show weakness because you know i actually had a, a a boss a ceo of a company tell me, and I'll quote, don't ever apologize Mm -hmm. because it's a show of weakness. Mm -hmm. And I can remember thinking, and I got to believe what she meant was something different than what I heard maybe. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, that's bad advice. How about if you screw up, own it. And then just say, you know, because it, I think that builds a lot more trust and respect versus trying to, you know, like you said, shame, blame, yeah. all that other bad right. stuff. That's right. And um, it takes vulnerability to apologize. If we've made a mistake, it requires us to look within and say, Ooh. when we feel regret, knowing that regret is a function of empathy is really powerful knowledge. So that's a little, little tidbit to get curious about. So when we think about regret, we have that feeling of, oh, I wish I would have shown up a little bit differently. And that requires us to, to empathize with another person's experience. And then being able to say, I'm sorry for how I showed up requires vulnerability. It's not weakness, it's brave. Um, and then, you know, look at the healing that can happen as a result. Oftentimes what people need to hear us say is to say, I didn't realize I apologize. I want to do better. And then we pick up and we move forward. It's powerful. There are people that for years struggle with never hearing that and don't understand that something we call it simple, but something like an apology can really repair things in a drastic way, work, working relationships and even personal relationships. Yeah. I mean, because it, let's face facts, Monday through Friday, we're at work more than we are at home with our families. So it, in very real terms, that is our life. For and sure. it's just no way to go through it, feeling all the things we talked about. That's right. And remember, we're in the people business. So caring for each other, I think, is a prerequisite to doing this type of work. Agreed. Yeah. So Sabrina, before we go, if people want to uh, reach out to you, follow you, get in touch with you. Now I'm assuming because of COVID, you're probably doing a lot of virtual coaching. Yeah, a lot of virtual coaching, virtual keynotes, um, now virtual workshops. Um, so a lot of my face-to-face stuff has stopped, but we can still do this. Okay. Um, we can still build connection this way. So LinkedIn. Okay. I'm gonna- 
go out on that LinkedIn limb and say, let's go there um, and connect and figure out, you know, what, what kind of support you may need if you need it. Okay. Just if you have general questions, I'll answer them. And I'll link, I'll link to your uh, um, LinkedIn profile in the, in the show notes. So if anybody's listening while they're driving or anything, it'll be, it'll be there. And okay. through that medium, people can reach out to you and say, Hey, Sabrina, I heard you. Um, and I think I might need some help. Is that, and that's the best place to start those conversations with you? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know what? I even think that you and I need to test out this little cocktail thing too and, and see what happens as a result of that. So I'm, I'm holding myself accountable to follow up with you on it. So there you go. So if you, if you, I put my project manager hat on, I have to ask you, when do you think that's going to be done? That's so good. Um, I'm actually going to work on it today. I'm feeling expired. Oh, so. I was only, I was only teasing you, but I'll take it. Here, I'm going to write it. I'm going to, now I'm going to write it down. So now it's right. Now it becomes real. So anyways. It's got a star next to it now because it just moved up the priority list. Oh, hey, yes. <laughs> now I know you'll really get to it. <laughs> Sabrina, I, I hope you had fun. I know I did. I did. I had a lot of fun. So Good. And, um, thank you for the vulnerability and the laughter. Sure. Well, hey, I'm nothing if not funny and vulnerable. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Sabrina, so, so much. Um, I know everybody who's listening and watching is, is going to love this one. So I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. We'll talk right. to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. It's Paul. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks for listening. I hope you found the podcast to be both entertaining and educational, as that's really what our goal is with it. If you did like it, please give us a review and a subscribe. The more folks who do this, the more the algorithms like us, so the more people will be able to find us. I also want to give special shout outs to Emma Critchley for her video and audio editing abilities, which quite frankly are way beyond mine, as well as Jeremy Grant and the team at the Timber Cross for their creative genius. I appreciate you all. I invite you to connect with us as well. We're all over social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, so we should be pretty easy to find. We share a lot of content, that is much like what we talk about on the podcast, so it may be of interest to give us a follow. You can also find us online at newenglandlean.com. That's our website, and it outlines all the services we provide, things we do, customer testimonials, case studies, white papers, as well as being our main conduit for story sharing about all things that are lean, quality, and culture change focused. So check us out there as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts about the podcast, things you'd like us to discuss, things you'd like us to change, or if you want to be a guest or know somebody who would be, please email us at podcast at newenglandlean.com. We're always trying to improve and welcome any feedback. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, make it a wonderful week.